This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's unsupervised learning. So, uh, you know, I'm here with John Stokes. Uh, you know, I, I often say this is a very special podcast, but uh, this is very special in a lot of ways. Uh, we've just come out of uh, no power for three and a half days and kind of a little shell-shocked. I want to talk about someone who talk to someone who uh, knows, knows what's going on with this sort of thing in terms of at least preparing for it. So uh, for those of you who don't know, John, uh, John is well-known in uh, the tech community, but also the prepper community. He has a big online presence. Um, you can find him at johnstokes.com and his Twitter, which is how I follow him, is John Stokes. But the Stokes has a zero in it, just just so you guys know. Um, and he's been a really big deal in terms of increasing awareness during the coronavirus pandemic. And now here in Texas, we have had a uh, a shock to our civilization <laughs> in a way. A friend of mine messaged me. He's like, "Does it feel like like a Cormac McCarthy novel?" And I said, "Honestly, I was walking around trying to find." you know, stuff from my family and looking at the expressions of people, their faces. Yes, uh, it does feel that way. Uh, there's kind of a dread and a darkness to the features right now. And I want to talk to John about, uh, you know, how we prepare and moving forward. So, John, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, I am a, a contributing editor at The Prepared, was um, up until very recently deputy editor uh, at the site. And um, I have been a professional prepper, uh, via the prepared as an editor and a writer there for about uh, the past two, two and a half years. Um, I got my start in prepping really as, as an adult in 2008. I grew up on the Louisiana Gulf Coast, and so I grew up in hurricane country and was a Boy Scout and was always prepared to some degree or another, and I know what it is to evacuate um, and flee a hurricane. Um, you know, I've done that a couple times. So, so yeah, I've been uh, some flavor of prepper all my life, but have really been into it in, uh, via the prepared for the past two and a half years. And we do um, professional reviews. We try to try to be scientific about things. You know, like we don't just recommend a brand of paracord. I I got a load test rig set up, and I load tested the paracord to see which kinds worked, you know, better than others. And we do this with everything with food we will taste test all the different kinds of prepper food and then make notes and we'll, we'll put together a panel and have kids eat it um you know i tested a bunch of fire starters and had my kids try them out um so so yeah we've been trying to be as scientific as we can uh, with our approach to prepping and it's sane and as rational and it's interesting because i had said on twitter that we don't really emphasize long-term grid down preps and we can go into this uh, uh, in the discussion, but we don't emphasize long-term grid down preps on the site. It's more of the modest stuff, it, it not, not just um, uh, change the batteries in your smoke detectors, although we talk about that or have two months cash cushion, you know, that, that kind of stuff we talk about. Um, we talk about uh, first aid, carrying a first aid kit and that kind of thing. But we tend not to place a heavy emphasis on the ki- preparing for the kinds of situations that, that we have come really close to here in Texas. 
which is which is a, an extended period of time without power. So, um, but I think that'll probably change. I, I definitely think there should be more emphasis now on what happens if you've got to go like a month without power. Yeah. So let me uh, just like a little context, which you know I don't have that much background in this except for my recent experience. Uh, so we were out for three and a half days. There was very we were out of power. We had gas and water. Thank God, some people have lost their water, uh, but they have had their power. If I had to pick between the two. I would actually keep the water and not have the power, even though it was cold, honestly. But uh, so three and a half days, there wasn't that much uh, warning. They were saying on Sunday they were going to do rolling blackouts. They didn't do rolling blackouts. What happened is we could see parts of the grid that stayed uh, powered, like because people's lights were on, uh, even from where I live. And then, you know, our neighborhood was totally blacked out. And so, um, you know, it was a very unequal distribution. And they had their reasons of why the, the grid, they said that the grid might have bet, gone down for a month if they didn't do what they did. So exactly as you said, John, like, uh, we we do need to prepare, I think, uh, at, a, at a greater level. Um, you know, and a lot of listeners probably have experienced this sort of thing. Uh, I will say, like, Texas people are not prepared for uh, sub-zero or below below uh, freezing weather the houses are not prepared uh there's water mains that are exploding a friend of mine just lost his condominium uh apartment um i mean he'll get insurance and he'll get paid back but right now he's a literal internal within the united states refugee uh you know so um there's some serious stuff happening there's food going off the shelves um we're doing okay that in that way but you know there's little things that we're missing and um it's just uh the expressions of people on their streets, you know, uh, is, is, is the thing that where it's like they have seen um, possibilities that they never thought they would ever see in this country. Um, so, John, I know that you were you were involved in the early warning about coronavirus. Uh, could you talk about what you saw in terms of our culture, our lack of preparedness? And when I say culture, I'm talking like regular people on the street, but also the political leaders. I wasn't as ahead of the curve as you, but I was a little bit of ahead of the curve. And I do feel like um, one of the things that annoys me is I feel like a lot of times people don't remember how lackadaisical and blasé they were relatively late into February of 2020. Yeah, I mean, I um, I was I was early with a lot of the Corona stuff, and you know, I was early because <laughs> I was one of these people that was just willing to take it seriously and game out uh, what could happen here if if what seemed to be taken hold in Wuhan um, was would come to the U.S. And I think that's, that's part of actually the key is just being willing to stop what you're doing and say, you know, this could actually happen. This is a thing that could happen. And it's interesting because I did that with Corona, but with this, um, with this present situation, uh, you know, we had already had a snow day, uh, which took me by surprise that previous, um, big big snowfall that we had here. I was like, wow, man, I didn't really think I would see this living here. Um, and so then when my wife, I wasn't paying attention to the weather, my wife started telling me, hey, look, it's going to freeze um, and there's supposed to be ice and it's going to get down into, you know, the teens. Now, she and I met in Chicago. You know, so I've, I've been in weather in the teens um, and lived in Boston during Northeasters and stuff like this. And so I, I thought I had kind of a mental model of what we were in for. And I personally was caught uh, much more by surprise by this weather event than I was by Corona. Corona, uh, I had been keeping track. We had a, a correspondent in China, in Beijing, 
um, for the prepared and who was feeding us intel. Uh, one of my writers is a, a principal data scientist at a, at a um, uh, big pharma company and develops life-saving drugs for a living. And so he is a math bioinformatics guy and he had been running numbers. And so we were early with this because we, A, had, were talking to people in first in, in China and then in Italy, it hit Italy early too. And we had contacts in Italy who were telling us how it was. And so then we just kind of modeled, okay, well, what if we get this here? And then we also were just willing to believe the numbers. And so, so I had my eye on that and was, and was um, had gamed out in a fair amount of detail most of the stuff that we ended up seeing, like everything from uh, shipping d- delays and disruptions to supply chain, all that kind of stuff. We had, we had scenario modeled that back in February uh, and in detail on the website. And at any rate, with this, though, I was just like, yo, it's just going to get really cold, you know. And and then when the grid started to go down, I was like, okay, wait a minute. You know, this is this is quite extraordinary. And I had let some of my prep slip. Um, I did not have the spare gas on hand that I thought I had. Uh, we had been meaning to get more propane. We haven't. We just bought an Airstream. And so we've got this 30 foot airstream and it's got propane tanks and we can heat it with propane. And my wife has been using it as an office and she and I just weren't communicating. I thought she was um, using the, the electric heat in it. We have these oil filled radiators that we use in it. And she was not, she was using the propane, um, you know, this winter and had run it most of the way down. And so I was kind of caught even as a prepper flat footed with, with a shortage of gas and propane on the property. And I have a lot of diesel on the property, but diesel will gel in cold weather. And this is not something that I was really familiar with because in, in my life of growing up in Louisiana, we had diesel trucks and even diesel cars and it never got below the 17 degrees that, Fahrenheit that you need to cause diesel to turn to wax inside of the tank. And so all of this diesel that I've got is all turned to like something very much like paraffin wax at this point. And so, you know, even as, as early as I was with something like the pandemic, like this situation um, certainly, certainly caught us, you know, less prepared than we would have wanted to be. Um, now, we were very fortunate in that we have not lost power, and I think that the reason is it's got to be that we're on some kind of circuit with like a fire department or a hospital or some other piece of critical infrastructure because our neighbors, neighbors have lost power. Our electric company is doing the – yeah, um, our, our, our neighbors have, have lost power, you know, so I think we're on some kind of, some kind of critical circuit here. But at any rate, um, we did lose water because the water froze, the pipes froze, and we tried to keep a trickle going, but it just got so cold. Um, I had pipes burst, uh, you know, like everyone else, and and we've now gotten our water back. Um, we haven't had internet. Uh, mobile is very spotty, but but fortunately we have had the lights on. So so that's been good that we haven't really had to deal with uh, the extremes of of cold. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, let me give let me give some context uh to the listeners who are uh, not in uh the Lone Star State, not in Texas. 
also, you know, a lot of people, and when I mean a lot of people, uh, you know, they say like 320,000 customers at some point had their power out in uh, in Austin, and Austin's population, its metro population is 2.2 million. Those customers, a lot of those are multifamily households. So, I mean, we're talking probably on the order of, I, I would say, 500,000 to a million people um, had power out. But the other thing that's happening now is, you know, people who have power are having issues with their water. Now, those of you who are biologists know that people can survive without food for a long time. They can't survive without water for a long time. So we have snow right now. Uh, I have a friend uh, who is melting snow uh, to get more water right now. Okay. Uh, There's issues with the hospitals with not enough water because guess what? They need to wash their hands with water. Uh, So, uh, it's like a double whammy where a lot of people, uh, they got the power back, but they don't have water. Water pressure is low, uh, you know, like pipes are burst. Like we, we've done okay that way uh, or in, in, in that way. So, and then there's the issue with gas where they're telling us not to use too much gas simultaneously. Basically we are dealing with a, like, I don't know, like a six Sigma event standard deviation away from expectation. So, uh John, I know you think about this sort of thing more than someone like me. Uh, how how do you feel? How do you think people should react to politicians or the bureaucrats that run ERCOT, which is the grid in Texas? Like, how do you think people should feel about them? Just, I mean, this is an extreme situation. I mean, if it took you by surprise, it took them by surprise. Yeah, I haven't been as as exercised about the political stuff or even really followed it because. There are so many layers of sort of craptastic going on here. Um, I mean, just to take the water thing, you know, uh, none of the water systems, even without the power, like the water stuff is so extraordinary. People, the way the building code is here, all of our hot water heaters are in our attics. And so I, multiple people that I'm connected to have, have had their, my hot water heaters in my attic had their pipes up there burst and their homes Same. flooded. Um, you know, it's just how it is. Um, we have horses. We have uh, outside dogs that we've brought in uh, early on. Um, and, you know, the dogs are – the outside, do- our outside dogs that are farm dogs, they have a nice large shed and, like, a big fenced-in area. And we keep double heat lamps in there. And one of the ways that I monitor is I've – is if it gets cool out, I put their water dish under the heat lamps. And so we brought them in on um, Sunday, I think, and they've been in the house with us, but their water dish under two of these, these heat lamps is still frozen. You know, like that's how cold it is. We have horses that we're trying to keep watered and everybody around here has livestock. Many of the families around here have horses and cows that they're trying to water and nobody is set up for it. Nobody has any of the equipment that, that people use in places where this happens to keep their livestock watered. So there are going to be a lot of dead pets, a lot of dead livestock. And, of course, yes, the hospitals, the homes, like the whole bit. So, you know, yeah, there's going to be a political food fight over this and over the power grid stuff. And I'm sure at some point I'll, I'll develop some kind of opinions about that. But right now, this is just so weird and so far, you know, beyond anything that, like, I frankly expected to prepare for here. A lot of my, of my own prepping and my mental modeling 
has been a not has not included this in the space of possibilities. I have not included multiple days of snow uh, and frozen ice on top of the snow and uh, gelled diesel fuel and being in the teens and in the single digits for a sustained period of time. I have not had that um, in my prepping modeling that I do for when I think about uh, what am I likely to face and, and how am I going to cope? It just hasn't been a part of my mental picture because it just, just doesn't happen here. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you've been, you've said multiple times about like, you know, the snowfall events. I mean, there are years that go by with no snow in Austin and we had a snowfall mm-hmm. event and I think everybody was thinking, okay, that's the one. And so this is actually uh, statistically, this is a human bias where we think something has happened Therefore, on a conditional probability, well, it's not going to happen again. But that's not how it works. It's independent probability, right? And so um, we actually shouldn't have updated. I think I'm not saying you did it, but I think a lot of people just thought that was our snowfall. Therefore, we're not going to have anything like this again. That's as bad as it gets. Well, it turns out that we had it worse and we had it more. And we really shouldn't have taken that particular snowfall as informing the future weather event. Now, this weather event, as you said, I mean, this is incredible. Like, people in this area of the country, I mean, in San Antonio, there was snow, you know? Uh, like, towards the Mexican border, on the coast, there was snow. Houston was cold. Like, this just doesn't happen. This is the subtropics. Dallas, okay, that's a separate issue. Dallas is, I'm going to offend people here, but it's kind of like southern Oklahoma. Uh, but once you come into central Texas, Houston, and you go south of that zone, it's very, very subtropical. So this is, yes, this is something that people were not expecting. And so um, it could be like maybe this is like a once-in-a-century thing or a once-in-a-generation thing. Uh, it doesn't make us feel any different. And um, do you have any insights? I, you know, I, like some people are telling me different things about whether the supply chain will come, at, come back online or not. Um, you know, the, the, the grocery stores are, the shelves are bare. Like, I mean, what do you, what, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's that's difficult because you know a lot of it is is around the roads and the gas. Um, there are gas stations that have lost power, and the ones that haven't lost power, they, they have lines or they're out of gas. You know, so so I I think the supply chains will um, knit back together relatively quickly when um, when things start flowing again. That said. Coming on top of the COVID supply weirdness, you know we had some we have supply chain issues around COVID here. <laughs> um, we are trying to build a guest house on the property, and there are just so many construction material related delays, and uh, the entire crew got sick with COVID uh, a few weeks ago and and was out, and all, all kind of you know work stoppages that are related to COVID and. So there are just general, even in the grocery store, there are things that you want that you can't get or portion sizes are weird. So we already had that. And then we've got this other layered on top of it. So, but but I think the basic stuff, like, you know, calories you'll be able to get uh, at some point soon and you'll be able to get gas and fuel stuff again at some point soon. There's a national propane shortage apparently. Uh, So that may be scarce. So there will be spotty things. There will be things that will take a while. But I think a lot of the basics will start to come back hopefully next week. Okay. I mean, that's good to know. I mean, how is this going to update you in the future? Because, 
you know, we, we, we can't keep preparing for the last catastrophe, but um, are you going to prepare a little differently going forward? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, now that this has happened, I'm going to do the basic stuff that one does if one lives in a state where this happens. So I will have snow chains for my tires, which, you know, I do not own. Um, because why would you have them here? Uh, I will have an engine block warmer for my diesel truck. I will have diesel additives that I can add in so that the tank doesn't gel. Um, I will keep a lot of, of spare propane. And this is just one of those things where I was in tractor supply uh, a couple of times this past month, and I saw the propane, and I thought, man, I should grab a couple of those. You know, and I just didn't. Um, that won't happen again, you know, so, so I'll definitely take my, my fuel preps more seriously. And I'm just going to basically prepare as if I live in a state that sometimes has snowfall for an entire week, uh, which if it doesn't happen again, well, then, you know, I've, I've, I've over prepped for it, but, but now that it's happened, I'm going to, I'm going to certainly take that seriously. So, uh, I mean, I, the last thing I want to ask you, John is, um, uh... Is what's happening here, is this like symptomatic of something in our culture, something in our state, something in our economy with the just-in-time? I mean, are we just like fragile because of the way we're set up, or is there still state capacity? I mean, are you taking like bigger lessons from this sort of stuff? Yeah, you know, this is it, this is like with the COVID stuff. Um, I, I wrote a blog post where I talked about how prepping is just flattening the curve for all kinds of supply chain stuff. I mean, there is definitely – just-in-time issues, just-in-time supply chain issues at work here. Um, there, you know, all, all of that, all of the normal prepping stuff that people that people um, should take seriously. Like, like we we certainly are well stocked on food here, and again, that's because of the just-in-time inventory thing. Uh, you know, lots of of you know batteries and solar, and you know, a lot of these kinds of things, and so. You know, I think the bigger picture is once again, people, A, they realize how quickly and suddenly um, things can go, things can get scarce, things that you need can get scarce. Um, a lot of stuff like water, like we've talked about water a couple times now, and water is the very first thing that we tell people uh, to prep. And we tell people, look, don't just buy a life straw or a water filter and think that you're okay. You may not be able to find water. Um, store actual jugs of water. You need gallons of water. And people don't take that seriously. But, you know, if you don't have gallons of water right now, everything is frozen. Like, what are you going to do? You know, people have, they have filled up a bathtub. We actually tell people, look, like, don't rely on the bathtub trick, man. Don't rely on the bathtub trick. Have have like actual water in proper containers. And if you filled up a bathtub and it's frozen, then, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be having problems. So, you know, I think this is waking people up to the idea that, that, yeah, you've got to take some of that slack that's been optimized out of the system. You've got to take that onto your own balance sheet. Some of the inventory that is been optimized out of the system, you got to carry it in your own house or your own apartment. Um, and people are going to have to be more because this kind of thing will happen again. Um, you know, no matter who you are or where you are, we've had a series of different kinds of cascading failures around the country related to, to climate change, related to the pandemic. 
And this is, this is touching people. This kind of thing is touching people everywhere they are um, in all regions of the country. Well, so, you know, I'm going to do a follow-up question because I wasn't going to ask you this, but uh, in regards to climate change, do you think we're going to have more volatility? We're going to have more out-of-sync infrastructure in relation to the climate it's going to experience? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I certainly think that that all of this is, is related to climate change, and we're going to see more of this kind of volatility and more of these kind of, um, you know, Six Sigma events and whatnot. You know, so I certainly would expect that um, people should take extreme weather perhaps seriously. You know, if you're in if you're in some place that is that is historically cold, you know, take extreme heat preps seriously and then vice versa um, with a place like this um, you've got to take extreme winter preps seriously all right uh it was great talking to you um not great the circumstances and uh you know i hope that my water situation is uh it, it, it maintains itself. I hope yours fixes in terms of the pipes um so the website is the prepared right yeah, theprepared.com. Prepared.com. All right. I'm sure that everyone's going to be checking that out. Um, I mean, the only upside of such a sad event like this is, uh, you know, your expertise and your business probably does a little better, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it, I'll tell you, though, it's like it's like I said at the beginning, I, um, I, I am, and I said this on Twitter, I'm going to start taking my long-term grid down preps more seriously because we did come close to to something like like even worse than what we've just been through and yeah. you know who knows it could happen again you know? yeah well i mean i guess the one thing that i do have to say is like if you said that it came close i mean maybe other people don't have to feel as bad because i mean you know i figure like of, of all the people that i know on twitter uh, i would figure well there's some other people that maybe would be a little bit more preppy but um of all the mentally stable people I know on Twitter, um, you, you would be the most prepared. And if this was a close call for you, I think that that's just a wake-up call for all of us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you, John. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Uh, so now I am going to be talking to my friend, Gareth Heinem, who uh, is a friend and also a sometimes co-worker we've worked together at multiple different places so i know gareth really well and he's been through a lot gareth can you introduce yourself and tell people what you have experienced yeah um my name is gareth heinem i'm a geneticist and i live in the downtown area of austin and probably one of the only downtown buildings that did not have power and so we went through the first night fine powerless just like the rest of austin and the second day, a pipe burst, but not the residential pipes, actually. I guess people were doing their due diligence and dripping their taps correctly. But the uh, actually, the fire sprinklers themselves froze and burst two units above mine and destroyed basically every single unit in the column, like totally unlivable, like the walls are peeling off, the floor exploded. And so naturally being powerless and waterless there with everything destroyed. I evacuated to a friend's place and it was going smoothly until literally the exact same thing happened to them. And these are not like wait, wait, wait. So slip the sprinkler. shot. The, the sprinkler. Yeah, the sprinklers were bursting. Yes, the fire department sprinklers that are always filled with water just in case there's a fire, you know. 
And like, you know, I mean, people should know you're not a uh, economically marginal person. Like you live in some nice complexes here. Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm saying. Like the two buildings that I had to evacuate because of this, like these are not like slipshod buildings. Like these are like high rises downtown. Like these are ostensibly the good buildings, the, you know? Yeah, they're part of the skyline. Yeah. And so, and so I'm in the wait, third place up in Round Rock and it's fine. But yeah, uh, trail of destruction, two places, two first sprinklers <laughs> totaled. <laughs> wait, so you're a refugee. I'm a, I'm literally a winter refugee, yes. Because like, you're going to be living there, and I think I know whose place you're staying at, but we don't need to, you know, uh, we can leave them anonymous. I think I know whose place you're staying at, but, I mean, you're going to be staying there indefinitely? Like, like what's your – I mean, can I ask? Like, I mean, what's your contingencies here? I'm I'm not sure. Uh, I talked to my original landlord for the first place, and they said, oh, we're not concerned with figuring out rent right now, although they will be, I'm sure, in like a week. They just want to make sure I'm safe and in a warm place, which I guess is nice. But this seems like completely uncharted territory for them in terms of like the logistics of whether I'm still paying rent or or even staying in this apartment going forward. On a unit you can't live in. Exactly. Yes. So like we're probably you... gonna find some yeah. things out here. Yeah. I mean, like, how much? Like, how much did you lose there, man? Um, well, I have renter's insurance for uh, about $15,000, and I'm probably going to come close to that amount just on the computer equipment and the bed and, like, some of the furniture. It's all it's all destroyed, completely waterlogged. Pretty much the only thing I managed to get out was uh, my laptop and a few batteries. Well, I mean, that's important. I mean, I mean like, knowing, knowing your work life, you know, our work life, you know, having stuff in the cloud, like, that's really helped. I mean, so you, you know, you're from D.C., uh, and mm-hmm. so, you know, you lived all over the place. But you lived in Texas for a while now. Uh, we've lived in Texas for a while. We kind of moved at around the same time, I think, to the state. Um, what's your general reaction to the way people reacted, the cold snap, like, everything? Like, it kind of felt surreal. Say, yeah, I know it's cliche to, like, hate on, like, to say, like, oh, Texans can't drive in snow and all that. But, I, and, and I mean, when you look, step back and look at it from coming from a cold place, you're like, oh, 18 degrees Fahrenheit? Like, that's not that bad. Like, of course, of course we'll be fine, right? But uh, that's not the case. And really, it wasn't the fault of, like, any person's behavior. But, like, the actual, like, infrastructure itself failed. And I think that's, like, the story that's been going around. You know, Texas's own power grid. There's many angles that have been taken on it. Yeah, so, I mean, you don't really blame anyone. You're just like, this was an act of nature, an act of God, and you're just trying to pick up the pieces here. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, maybe I'll be spiteful once I've settled down again, but for now it's a pretty hectic runaround. And where are your friends staying, the the, the, the place you were staying at? Like, So what was the sequence? Oh, like, we, yeah, we, we just... I went to their place, their place busted, then we did this little, like, exodus to our other places. So, <laughs> diaspora, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Man. And so, and, like, how are things at Round Rock? Round, was Round Rock affected very much? Oh, yeah. The, um, Round Rock and Pflugerville, I'm, like, right on the border between them, and they both seem pretty good. H-E-B stocked. Uh, water, power. It's pretty nice out here. Wait. Did you just say the H-E-B in Round Rock is stocked? 
I, I did. There's two of okay. them, and they're both good. <laughs> All right, listeners, um, get in your car <laughs> once the roads melt and drive up to Round Rock and empty those AGVs because <laughs> we need we need stock AGVs here in Austin. It's been crazy. So um, that's one of the things that I will say. It's just like this sense of like supply chain um, uncertainty. So it's like life is normal there. No, life is normal in Round Rock. Uh, the roads up here are far worse. Like you're not going to be getting anywhere with a two wheeler probably, but, um, life, life is pretty normal now. I mean, power's all on. People are going out about their day as normal, just at home. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's too extremely different here. Uh, probably yeah. like the most frustrating thing about this whole thing is that, I mean, you know, like we work remotely with a lot of people and those people are just like, it's like nothing's changed for them. This is a very yeah. like localized disaster that we are like compensating yeah. for. Yeah. So it's like it's like you know the way I feel is like I went off I went offline and the world kind of froze for three and a half days for me. I didn't really care about my like I canceled so many meetings and my schedule and I'm so behind. But like I was just focused on not freezing, you know. And I was paranoid and stressed out about the water situation. So the water mains are exploding here and people are running out of water, low water pressure. And so that's scary. We didn't have that happen, but like literally every day. And so now I, I think about the water. So um, it's been a little disjointed. I hope by the weekend we'll come back and converge back to reality. Yeah. Being worried about the water is good. Let me tell you. And I mean, because both times it was fire sprinklers that burst, I think that, you know, dripping the faucet actually works really well in preventing the burst. It was the things that we couldn't drip that exploded. Well, I mean, so going forward, like, what are you thinking in terms of prepping more, prepping less, or just whatever shit happened? Uh, you know, I can't change the powers that be, like with ERCOT and the power grid people, obviously. But uh, I was thankfully quite prepped after driving home from Washington, D.C. to Austin. So I had like charged cell phone batteries, full tank of gas, and that saved my ass twice, literally. Yeah, I mean, the gas, I have to say, um, having a full tank of gas really helped because, you know, the car, you could use it to charge, you could use it to heat. I mean, all these things, like you count down, like, you know, what's miles per gallon, how many gallons do you have, like how long could you get this to last, assuming you have it on for X number of hours. Like these are the things that are going through people's minds right now in Austin or work. Yeah. And by the way, the heating centers uh, are full. Like if you go there, I mean, if you call 911 and you're like going to die, the police will come get you and take you somewhere. But the uh, heating centers that are that were local to me downtown were actually completely full. And so were the hotels. So. You, so, so you weren't you, getting you heat tried, there. Yeah, you tried to go visit. You tried both of those. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, what's going on with the hotels? Like, they're all on the grid. Like, do you have any insights? Are they just, like, whatever? I mean, I don't, I don't really have any detailed insight on the hotels, but uh, the prices were high. I didn't end up getting one. Wait, what was the price? What was the price? I want to know now. Uh. I was seeing on the that was that was like around the second night, and that was uh, five hundred six hundred dollars. Of course, like downtown's always high, but it's not that. Yeah, high. it's always going to be know, like two or three hundred at least, right? Exactly. Yeah. 
So they just they just like double tripled it. And that's not as bad as honestly I was thinking. So I mean that's uh I, I heard later on they were hitting four figures, but I can't verify that. It's just a rumor. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh how are you I don't know, like after all this you gonna stay in Texas? Like I mean what's your uh I mean I know that this is like a weird time to ask because this is literally Thursday, we got the big freeze pretty much on Monday, and the power went out on Sunday night uh, or Monday morning, super early. But I mean, like, where are you going? You know, I mean, you, you have family, and you have family in the, you know, Mid Atlantic. You know, you, you don't have anything tying you down here. I mean, what's going on with you? Uh, I can't really get back to the Atlantic at this moment, but I'll. I mean, like I said, the landlord's like seems to be figuring out this new ground of now destroyed apartments. I'm not the only one that this happened to. And when they wrote to me, they they seemed optimistic that they'll be able to fix the entire apartment pretty quickly. But we'll see what actually happens. I think at well, minimum, I'll, yeah. I'll have to find a new place and negotiate breaking leases and things with them. Uh, well, so and I mean, at I maximum, mean, I'll probably like temporarily stay with family or friends. I mean, I think part of the issue here is like they they got to deal with their own insurance situation because if their insur- insurance situation is good, they're good, right? They, I mean, it's not their money; it's other right. people's money. So if their insurance situation is not as good, then that's their money, and then all of a sudden, um, yeah. It, I mean, gonna... I, I myself have the renter's advantage here. Like, yeah, I lost a lot of personal belongings, but ultimately, I don't have to worry about structural damage, and my Personal bloggings are just insurance claims, so I write it off, and I can be more or less hands-free, just a little bit homeless. And, and so what day did this happen, though? Like, this happened on Tuesday or Wednesday? Because we were texting, uh, the you know. Pipe, so the pipe burst during Tuesday's daytime, like around 3 p.m. Okay. Okay. So that, that was – and our power our power went out the day before on Monday. Yeah. Yeah, 2 a.m. 2 a.m. on Monday. Uh, I was actually yep, up. Exactly. I was actually up. So, uh, and then, you know, we were uh, like, did your your power never came back on, right? The power came back on about an hour ago, at my first place. Yes. Okay, so you were you were notified that it came back on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, because right now it looks like they're moving it back to everybody. Um, we were. I mean, I did the math. Like, we were in, like, the 25th percentile for, like, how long? Because we, we we lost it at the same time as everybody else, and it seems like they got more people on. And, um, you know, there's like there was, like, this morning there was 80,000 customers that were still powerless, and at max it had been 320. So we were in the last 80,000, and there's still some people. It looks mostly around the around the river. So uh, I don't know what the reason for that is, but those, that's I, I noticed that, too. Yeah. yeah. So... I mean, who knows why and that's around there. But um, I think we'll, we'll find out a lot more things in the next coming weeks. A lot of us will be super interested. Yeah, I'm looking at the map now, uh, the outage map, and there's very few things that are – actually, there's nothing above 1,000. There's nothing – there's no block above 1,000 customers now, whereas before it was covered with red. Now it's just like a couple of orange splotches. So we're doing pretty good now. Yeah, I mean, this is grading. This is, this is grading. Yeah, this is grading on a curve. All right. Um, well, thank you for your time, Gareth. Um, you know, I'm sure I'll see you around after coronavirus, after pandemic. Uh, yeah, I don't know, man.
I don't know. I mean, this has been a really right. crazy three three days, <laughs> and I appreciate your time. Yeah, happy to give my disaster interview. Hey, everybody. Uh, I have someone a little different here uh, in terms of the experiences they're going to be uh, telling us about what happened here in Texas uh, this week. Um, I am here with Marina Roberts. Marina, could you introduce yourself? Yes. Uh, so thanks so much for having me on. My name is Marina Roberts. I use she, her pronouns, and um, I am a member of Austin DSA. I'm also a member of the Homes Not Handcuffs Coalition here in Austin. So um, I guess, you know, the main reason I reached out to you is a friend of a mutual friend. I know he's involved in social activism here in town, um, you know, with the unhomed people, uh, you know, just more marginalized uh, populations probably. And, you know, I'm hearing a lot of stuff from people who uh, frankly have good jobs, um, you know, have good houses and they're, you know, talking about no water and no electricity. Um, you know, they, I don't want to get into the details. There's a guy on my block, and he 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 lives in a place doesn't have electricity. And he said, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years, so I don't know what people are talking about. And that gave me kind of like a totally different mm-hmm. perspective. Um, to be entirely frank, he's actually doing pretty well because everything that's super stressful for everybody else is just like he's just got to figure out a way to survive day to day. And I guess this is more like normal for him. Um, so that's that's all I know, though, because I haven't been out and about um, like a lot of people have been hunkering down due to coronavirus. But also just this whole experience has just been exhausting and draining for me because, uh, like, I'm used to things like electricity, which I have again. Uh, so, so right. yeah. Can, yeah. So can you can you tell us just like where like what's going on with these other people that we don't, you know, frankly hear about? on social media too much. Yeah. Yeah. So um, definitely I think that's the perspective to lead with, right? That um, for many of us, we are used to having gas and water and warmth all the time um, and electricity all the time. But for our unhoused neighbors, that's something that they're already accustomed to living without. So in many ways, this climate you know, disaster is just kind of another day in the life, but with the added problem of freezing temperatures and snow, which many people are not, you know, prepared for, right? So what I can speak to is basically just the sort of work that has been happening on the ground here in Austin in order to kind of meet that need um, and in order to make sure that people who – you know, are unsheltered right now, aren't, you know, trying to navigate this storm without, you know, without shelter and aren't having to sleep in the snow. So um, I spoke with my friend Kim Varela Broxon, who uh, is an Austin DSA organizer, and she's been doing a lot of coordinating work around hotels. And I think that that's probably one of the biggest um, efforts that, that has been, uh, you know, has been organized in order to address the needs of the homeless community. So Kim has been um, trying to find donors to put up credit cards to get a hotel room. She's been calling hotels, transporting folks um, to hotels and, and doing a lot of the coordination to get volunteers who have four-wheel drive who can get people places, um, coordinating a lot of food and water distribution with organizations like ATX Helps and Austin Mutual Aid. Um she has also been trying to connect crisis and mental health support, right? Because what we're seeing is a lot of unsheltered folks who have a lot of different kinds of needs, right, um, that were already 
in many cases not being met, um, being put in a in a hotel, so you've got shelter, but those other problems, you know, are, are continuing to be a part of the equation, right? So we've got social workers who are doing conflict resolution with management to stop them from calling the police um, and also kind of helping unsheltered folks navigate discrimination. So there are a couple of big issues that have that have kind of happened with that hotel sheltering effort. The first one is price gouging and discrimination. Some business owners would rather watch poor people freeze to death than provide the service they customarily provide at normal rates if they are being asked to provide that service to unsheltered folks. So we're having to kind of navigate a lot of that. <clears throat> Jacob Aronowitz, who is another friend of mine who has been really instrumental in getting a shelter on Cameron Road up and running, um, has been, you know, you know, uh, working with a lot of unsheltered folks and getting them into shelter. And he spoke to how um, another issue that came up is you would designate a, a space like a union hall um, as a shelter and get folks into it, but then power and water might be lost at that location. So then you have to evacuate to a different shelter, right? So there's a lot of logistic issues that have been coming up. The third big issue is that um, you know, in many cases, these um, mutual aid organizations like Austin Mutual Aid, Stop the Sweeps, or Street Forum would get people into hotels and shelter, um, but then, you know, only for one day or only for two days, right, because people didn't start off with the, the money that started coming in after the disaster became, you know, national news. And so now they've got a little bit more money and they're trying to um, extend the stays of these people in their hotel rooms, but a lot of the rooms have already been kind of booked, right? So the reservations couldn't be extended because house folks who lost power and just want a warm place to stay are booking hotel rooms. And so the hotels are, you know, trying to boot out the unsheltered people in order to get sheltered people in who want to have a, you know, have a hot shower or stay somewhere that has heating that works, right? So that's been kind of a big thing. Yeah. So I so I I do have a question about the hotels because I I don't know anything about this. Um, I have a neighbor who, uh, uh, let's just say, judging by the vehicles and uh, the the food delivery, is uh, someone with a lot of discretionary income. And uh, you know they swung by and asked if we were okay, and they just said they're going to a hotel. And I was like, okay, so. Um, you know, I, I heard rumors, but I, you know, I've been focusing on my own stuff like a lot of people, uh, honestly. And then I heard from a friend of mine who lost his condo due, uh, due to a, you know, sprinkler uh, explosion issue. Uh, he tried to get a hotel and they were doing three to four times regular rates from what I could tell. Um, do you know about the regulations, like what's going on here? Because, you know, they have their hotels because they're on the grid near a hospital or a fire station. I mean, it's not like they paid extra. Like, I mean, I'm just curious, like, I mean, we we all understand what the ethical issues here are, but what what, what are the legal issues? Do you know? Like, I mean, what do you guys have to deal with? Mm, I, I mean, I wish that I could speak with a little bit more, like, relevant background on the legal issues at play. My understanding is that price gouging in an emergency is illegal. Like, that's a crime. It's a defined crime. But I had a friend who reported um, the, there was a Ramada – in I think somewhere in South Austin that was, you know, price gouging. And 
And so she reported it to Ken Paxton's office, and she got a letter back from Ken Paxton's office that was kind of confusing. I can forward it to you. But um, it was something like, you know, he just defined price gouging and said that there hadn't been an emergency declaration, and so those rules didn't apply. And we were very confused because, you know, the emergency declaration had certainly been in place both whenever she sent that email and whenever she got the response. So, you know, obviously we are are kind of just as confused as everybody else is about what rules do and do not apply and how they are supposed to work. Because it seems to me that something illegal is going on with these hotels, but, uh, you know, unfortunately I don't know exactly what, you know, what okay. rules being violated or any of that. So, so I have a question like earlier in the week, uh, well, most of the week, we had the electricity issue. Now we got the water issue. Uh, like, how does that work with the with the type of community that you're trying to help out? Uh, you know, be safe and you know, be well. I mean, do they? I mean, I, I, honestly, like, uh, so, you know, I have an external water, and I know some people use it, and I'm okay with that. Um, I ha- I still have water going on, so I'm fine. But like, it looks like two thirds of Austin doesn't have water. People within the houses that have bottled water or have filled up their tubs are freaking out. I mean, what's going on with people without houses who don't have a tub, you know, who probably don't have bottled water? I mean, there's there's a variety of different um, kind of coping mechanisms and responses here. This is a huge part of the reason why getting people into hotels has been so crucial, because if you are on the street, all the things that you and me might be able to resort to in order to hydrate ourselves like if you don't have electricity but you have water then maybe you can boil it on a gas stove or maybe you can get yourself to an HEB and then pick up some you know water pallets or something if you're on the street then you're in a very different situation so like things that people have been doing like melting snow and boiling that like if you don't have a way to boil it then you know obviously you're you're in much more dire straits than even you know even house folks are so um, I know that a lot of folks at camps bought propane and have really been depending on propane tanks to heat water and to, you know, heat food and to heat their their tents and the places where they live. Um, but I would really just say that, you know, if you are able to contribute to a mutual aid organization or donate water to uh, a nearby shelter, that is very badly needed, right? Um, you know, mm-hmm. if you live in a house and if you have access to running water and a way to boil it, then I would really encourage you to drink that if you can. And if you get your hands on any any bottled water or any water in a can, to donate that to these shelters, you know. Donate it to a camp. If you see a camp, like, drop it off because it's, it's been really, really difficult. That's been a really hard problem to navigate. Well, so, you know, talking to... Um you know, people who, you know, are unhoused. Uh, I mean, how have, I mean, like, I'll be entirely frank. I think a lot of uh, middle-class Austonians have been just having, like, a freak out this whole week. Um, mm-hmm. How have they been reacting? Because, you know, honestly, like, the one person who I know who doesn't have, like, conventional living situations seems, like, pretty chill and kind of be like, stuff happens. I'm just going to have to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um 
so I, I spoke with my friend Courtney Sigisbari, who is also a member of Austin DSA and has been doing um, a lot of social work. She is a social worker professionally, and she's been working her job and then getting off work and then going to hotels and doing that conflict resolution work that I mentioned um, sometimes until after midnight. So she's running on not a whole lot of sleep um, and helping folks who are in, you know, a really dire situation day to day. But she kind of spoke to the fact that for many of the unsheltered community who have gotten into hotels, this storm is actually kind of a respite from the brutality of what they normally have to endure, right? And so for many people, getting into a hotel is just kind of a, I don't know, like a a space where they can process some of the trauma that they've been going through um, and, you know, and engage in whatever coping mechanisms they have, you know, and that's complicated because in many cases you've got kind of substance use issues that um, right now people who were using substances in order to cope with the brutality of life on the streets might not be able to access that. And so they're going through withdrawal on top of going through um, a weather, you know, a climate crisis. Uh, I think Honestly, like one of the things that I wanted to speak to, because I know that there are a lot of questions surrounding this. So there has been this hotel ish, you know, effort, right? And the city has opened cold weather shelters and there are places for people to go so that they didn't have to go through the, the, the storm, um, you know, in a tent, but there were many people who didn't take those opportunities, right? And so I think that anytime you're talking about the unsheltered community, you have to kind of understand the amount of trauma that um, is present there. And so many people, you know, just kind of know how to survive outside, right? They, they've they got their tent, they've got their sleeping bag, they've already lived through brutal winters before. And so they are not you know, they're not really eager to go into maybe a a big um, indoor crowded shelter where their autonomy is going to be infringed on, right? Or where they are not going to get the support that they might need. People are also really fearful of losing their camps, losing their possessions, right? Because it takes a long time to get the things together that you need to survive on the street, right? It's hard. It's hard to do that, especially if you are already living on the street. And so people are aware of how how much effort it would take to get all of their possessions, you know, back together if they lost them. And so people are really fearful about that. People are fearful of getting COVID in a crowded indoor shelter, right? Um, yeah. 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 I, I mean, in a way, just like talking to you, this kind of is, fits a bit of my expectations. Uh, you know, people who, you know, they're used to going H- to HEB regularly or getting their favorite delivery. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's like we are actually like, uh, like less. We're, we're we're more fragile to stuff like this. Like, I mean, these people who are outdoors. I mean, they're already dealing with. I mean, it was cold. It was really cold. That's what I was scared of. Uh, for you know. Uh, my neighbor who I know who who is living outdoors 
And uh, I'm going to be entirely frank. He was like shockingly chill about it. And, you know, he had propane. He had, he was prepped in a way. Like he just like, cause he has to prep for life. Uh, and the rest of us, like whether we're prepped or not, um, it's just, we live in a different universe in some ways in terms of expectations of comfort and maybe certainty, reliability, regularity. I mean, is that right? Or like, I mean, am I off base? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, the you know, the the thing to remember, obviously, is that um, the homeless community is a community. And so that means that there are a diversity of people there who have a lot of different um, strategies and a lot of different ways of living, right? So, yeah, you are going to have people who really have their shit together and who are really prepared and, and kind of have the things that they need and have done a good job of, of, like, you know, building community, you know, in places like underpasses and wherever these homeless encampments are. But obviously you're also going to have people who are just struggling a little bit more and, and trying to navigate different problems, right? So one of the things that Courtney spoke to was that people who are, um, you know, who usually have um, medications that they take, right, medications that help them deal with trying to get off the substances that they had, you know, been struggling with addiction to or people who take medications to help them with um, mental health issues. In this crisis, they might not have access to those medications, right? So in many cases, you've got folks who are in shelter, in shelters or in, um, in hotels who are uh, experiencing mental health crisis or other crisis and might engage in behavior that's like alarming to management, right? So somebody who is yelling or somebody who is hallucinating. And that is vulnerability, right? Like that's not somebody, that's not an indicator that that person is about to be violent um, necessarily. That's usually an indicator that that person is really vulnerable and needs help. So it's just been difficult because, um, you know, like, yeah, some people are, some people are prepared. Some people are just kind of um, a lot less sensitive to, you know, changes like this because it doesn't really change the game for them, whether or not buildings have, you know, water or electricity if they're unsheltered anyway. But um, there are other people who I think are really going through it right now, right? So it kind of, it really does depend on the specific individual or, or you know, family that you're talking about, I think. Yeah. Well, so, uh, you know, I'm going to close out with a couple of uh, a couple of questions, I guess, uh, or the primary question. Um, you know, we're having the water crisis right now. The power is mostly back. Uh, the, it's going to get warmer. Um, you know, I think a lot of us who are in homes are hoping, I mean, I still have water. Um, hopefully the water will come back, but that this is going to be the end of the current crisis. But, um, you know, for the population that you're talking about, uh, are they going to have challenges in the coming weeks? I mean, there's going to be all sorts of issues. Like there's some people who, you know, their houses are not livable right now for various reasons. So they're going to be in the shelters, maybe. Um, I mean, some resources are going to be stretched that maybe, you know, are needed by other people normally. Um, I mean, is this going to have like a knock-on effect weeks, maybe even months for some communities? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, I spoke with my friend Peter, who is an organizer with Stop the Sleep. And he um, kind of spoke to the fact just the reality that, um, you know, there will be lingering trauma from this crisis for our unhoused neighbors. We're going to be finding bodies of people who are left outside or who didn't have tents or sleeping bags because they were taken by sweep screws. 
Um, so we are going to have to kind of mourn those losses as we continue to struggle, right? And so, um, I mean, the impact that this is going to have on the resources uh, that are kind of directed at unhoused people, that's an interesting question because, like, we already had a homeless community in Austin that was growing because of COVID, because of financial instability, because the rent is going up at a higher rate in Austin than any other city in the U.S. Um, and because we live in a state that has precious few protections for workers or for tenants, and so it's very easy for somebody to wind up on the street. Um, okay. And so those resources were already getting stretched then, and I think that this yeah. this is a mass scale crisis that is going to continue to stretch them. Yeah, so, I, mean, I, mean, I, I can definitely – oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say uh, – I, I do want to say for uh, – listeners, which is going to be most of the people listening to this podcast uh, that are not in Austin, Texas. Uh, it's a warm city. Uh, you know, there is a large population that does live outdoors and they're very visible and they're very numerous. Uh, this is not a, uh, this is not, I mean, it's a marginal community insofar as like, you know, when, when you define like people like the center of public life normally, but in terms of numbers, there's a lot of people we're talking about here. Um, this is not a, a minor uh, issue. Mm, yes, yes, definitely. And so I can, you know, if if folks are interested in supporting, I can definitely recommend um, some ways to help. Um, if you are not in the city and you're just kind of looking at what's going on and you want to do something, I would direct you to Austin Mutual Aid, which is a, probably our biggest mutual aid organization. Um, so you can um, Venmo them money, I believe, at Austin Mutual Aid or at Austin Mutual Aid Hotels if you want to specifically help that hotel effort. Um, Stop the Sweeps is another group. They're on social media, and they're kind of trying to use um, social media to you know, keep up political pressure on electeds. So if somebody wants to use social media to kind of learn more about the political side of this, I would direct you there. So, you know, if you're remote, you can donate, you can call and email reps, you can boost efforts on social media. Um, and if you are if you are in town, if you are a local, you know, um, there have been volunteer shortages at the city level. So, you know, reach out to any of these organizations and just see where the need is, right? If you have a four-wheel drive truck or a vehicle, um, if you're able to, to um, transport people or especially, you know, items to, to shelters, that's that's really badly needed right now. Um, yeah, I, I think right. that that I think that's kind of about it. Well, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, thank you for your time. Uh, really appreciate uh, the information. Uh, just awareness, you know, just just to even know what's going on out there because I feel like, you know, just with coronavirus, a lot of us have narrowed our horizons. And then, like the recent shock here in Austin, I think it's gone even further. Like people are just looking to themselves, looking to their own family, their own friends. And sometimes you need to like come up for air and, and look around and see what's going on in this world. And there's a lot of stuff that's happening. Mm -hmm. And so I really appreciate that input. Uh, thank you, Marina. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on. All right, guys. Um, so I'm now here with my, my friend Lisa, who I have talked to before for a podcast, and I'll put that in the show notes. But uh, Lisa works in tech, um, and she is a recent transplant from the left coast to Texas. And uh, what a welcome it's been. Uh, Lisa, can you tell yeah. the audience more about yourself and what's been going on the last week? 
Uh, sure. I moved here about a month and a half ago, early January, uh, because uh, we wanted to remain in a city that was friendly to tech, but we wanted to get out of California. Same story as literally everyone else who's moving to Austin from California. Um, and uh, we wanted to buy a house because the interest rates are low. And I think that uh, like our introduction to Austin was pretty similar to the last week, but like low grade because we forgot to get our electricity turned on when we moved in. First time homeowners didn't know what we're supposed to be doing. Um, but yes, this last week has been horrific. I I am here with a eight month old daughter and uh, but yes, as I was saying, um, I'm living here with my husband and eight month old daughter and to not have power or heat for two full days um, and unreliable access to water has been completely terrifying. Uh, I didn't even have access to internet. I, I was basically standing in like the, the one horror. Uh, when we finally got power on Tuesday, um, I was like, okay, I have like, I, I still didn't have internet, uh, but I was texting my friends uh, to be like, can you just text me any news updates? I don't know what's going on. Can you text me uh, and let me know if other people learned that nothing was happening and then turn my phone back off and go back into the bedroom, which was the room. Okay. Um, Wednesday, we finally got internet, which is when I went on Twitter and I was like, okay, let me message every single person I know and check if they're okay. And that's when I messaged you, Razib. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I messaged you, I messaged the hope, uh, Byrne and Pamela Hobart, um, a few other people, uh, that I know from Twitter that I'm on a Slack with, uh. I knew that Byrne and Pamela didn't have, when I first messaged them, they didn't have power. And I was like, well, we just got power. Do you want to come over? And the roads are horrific. So they were like, no, thank you. We'll stick it out. And they got power pretty quickly after that. Uh, didn't have water. So I was like, okay, at least they're okay. Um, well, so, you know, for, for context for the listeners out there, uh, the roads here are treacherous, partly because they have no snow plows and we had snow, it had snowed. It was super icy and drivers in Austin are not used to being icy. So there were literally like a, the blocks around us. There were crashes, like things were happening. We saw near misses on our very quiet side street. Um, like people had no idea what was going on um, and they were discombobulated. A lot of people were nervous. Uh, they were stressed. It was just everything was up in the air. That's the way that I would describe it. Yeah. And nobody has the tires for this either. Like, why would you get ice tires in Texas? Yeah, a lot of people are from California like you. And so it's not like people from California are prepared either. Yeah. Gosh, I didn't even have warm. I didn't have proper warm clothes. I was like exactly a layer of my clothes underneath try to gain some skills where I can survive. Yeah, so we had to, for a short yeah, period. A lot of people were doing ad hoc layering because we don't do that here. You know, we don't yeah. do that um, in Texas because... It's not necessary, and you know, um, I I don't have that clothes like that uh, because never had to use it. Um, can Can you tell me about like just you know you talked about all these people? Some people they never lost anything, and then other people lost everything. And I mean, were there any patterns? Like, there's talk right now that people in on the east side, east of I thirty five, were kind of screwed. I know some of it was. So we have um, 
there's there is a neighborhood right next to my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it's like you can kind of see not not from my house, but from other houses on my in my neighborhood on my street. You could actually see houses that had lights the whole <laughs> way through, and it was because they were connected to a hospital grid. You know, oh, um, yeah. yeah. So they had, they were fine, and they were literally across the street from like houses that had nothing until this morning. Uh, can you talk about any of your impressionistic sense of that? I reached out to a Twitter mutual um, when I finally got internet, and he had not actually lost power at all, and uh, he'd been basically hosting whoever he could host in his house. Um, I guess he got lucky. Um, I, I know people in Dallas who didn't lose power. I was freaked out because I have cousins and friends in Dallas as well. And n- like, I know things are bad in other parts of Texas, but nobody I've spoken to in Dallas so far has lost power. Um, I think yeah. Austin and Houston got hit the worst. Yep. Well, so my understanding from talking to people is parts of Dallas have been doing the rolling blackouts that they planned for Austin. But what happened here is they didn't roll. They just blacked some parts of Austin out and left some parts parts of Austin good. And so it was a very unequitous, you know, there was a lot of lack of equity, as we would say today. Yep. Um, you know, like like I joked, I joked on Twitter that um, some must freeze so that others have heat. You know, yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I mean, that's how I was feeling because, like, you can see from my place, you can see places like these high rises that have light. I can see that part of the sky. Like, you know, like there's zones like four blocks away. They have power and they've had power the whole time and we don't have power. It's just it kind of leaves you just like confused. And you understand why primitive man believed in capricious gods. Yeah. I think, you know, you're the only one that I think I'm going to talk to who uh, because I'm going to talk to a bunch of different people, but um, who has an infant. Like, what was that like? Can you just talk about that? Because that would have been crazy in my opinion. I was terrified. Um, I didn't have warm clothes for her. Uh, I put her in every piece of clothing that I could get on her. She was not happy about that. Uh, It was about 50 degrees uh, Fahrenheit in our bedroom. And she was a trooper. Other than diaper changes, um, she was she was pretty happy. She was playing. Um, The struggle was getting her to stay under the blanket. She didn't want to do that. She really hates blankets. Uh, as you know, infants of this age, you, you have to like tie the blankets onto them. Yeah. Um, uh, I was basically terrified that she would poop and it would go everywhere and I would have no way of dealing with it. I am li- I'm thanking God that did not happen. Every single poop was just a normal poop that was handled in the normal way and did not require any extra work um i think other other parents will relate to this the the first year of your child's life you're just talking about poop (laughs) yeah yeah no you know i mean i was focused on certain things checking text now austin energy but uh you know that was great that was totally different so it's like you know we went through this and it wasn't that bad in hindsight it could have been worse you know so it's kind of like a wake-up call that's how i feel like what do you think I think that I need to learn a lot more about home ownership and I need to make sure that I am more of a prepper than I am currently. I think we are kind of semi-preppers as it is, uh, which is why we had a lot of stuff that other people might not have. Like we have a ton of food that we, that would, we weren't worried about food, for example. Um, 
but things like making sure that we have extra energy, like an extra source of energy. We, we didn't have a generator. Um, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think I'm going to learn a lot more about prepping and I'm going to try to gain some skills where I can survive off the grid for a short period of time if I need to, like I had to. Yeah. So uh, is everybody you know back powered up now? It looks like there's very few people in Austin that don't have power now. Uh, your last tweet, um, Wednesday night was that some people will freeze. You, you've mentioned this tweet. Um, I woke up in the morning and I've been, I've basically been thinking of you all night in an SUV and I have been like imagining you running out of gas. And I was just like, okay, the first thing I'm going to do when it is appropriate to text is text receive and see if he's okay. And you were not replying. And I think like I started slowly freaking out like every like every consecutive half hour that I was not seeing a response from you um and I will have to say that I I received such a great response on Twitter and from my neighbors in my neighborhood um offering help I I I had two people who were uh about to go out and walk over to you to see if you were okay Okay. Because I figured, yeah, maybe his phone is dead and he's just fine. No, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate I'm that. Like, oh my god, I don't want to dox receive that. <laughs> I want no, to. It was a, it was a, no, it was a weird situation because, <laughs> you know, we were doing okay, but it definitely didn't feel okay. And there's that yeah. uncertainty. So what I was worried about, and what I'm still worried about as of this recording, um, is the water. Yep. Okay. So the power, yeah, that was kind of freaky, but you know, we had enough gas that we were going to be good for like, you know, another week and a half. And if we were still powered out after a week and a half, we yeah. probably would have just gotten in the car and drove somewhere else. <laughs> like literally yeah. like go back to the West coast, you know, <laughs> just, just leave the state. <laughs> but, uh, um, how many states are we going to leave, man? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, but, uh, you know, but the, but the water thing, you know, biologically you can't survive more than a couple of days without water and water makes you sick. You start to think about all these things. And so I think that the key that I'm thinking about is like, we need to have a lot of potable water. Um, you know, I think everything else is, is after that. Um, and I don't think we don't, we think about it enough. I didn't think about it enough. Um, I mean, part of the issue is like, we are in like a six Sigma, like six standard deviation unit, of uh of what happened it was like 10 degrees fahrenheit here in central texas what you know so um we were not prepared we were found wanting as a culture uh as an infrastructure as a state government uh so you know as we're closing out this conversation you know i want to talk to you about like you're new to texas what do you think about this the state the the politics like have you paid any attention to that i know you've been busy i've been busy but um kind of came up for air today and I'm, I'm a little appalled uh it seems like you know there were people i mean look like you we had enough food that wasn't a real issue like we were yeah. stocked up we were more worried about the spoilage of the food and since it was so cold it didn't seem to have spoiled but there are people who are gonna have spoiled food and they don't have money and this was their food to get to the end of the month yeah I mean, so there's some serious stuff going on in this in this region of the country right now that we don't have visibility on because, you know, let's be frank, we're not those type of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and meanwhile, you have politicians kind of showing their ass all, around, all about like they always do. And 
yeah. I'm kind of like I, I'm kind of feeling like a seething sense of like just background anger. Like, how are you feeling? So I am not sure. Everyone who has cast blame is pissing me off. Like, I don't think I have enough information to actually make any sort of judgment on any decision that was made about how the power went out and all that stuff. Like, I just, I literally don't know enough about infrastructure and how it works. Like, it's it's very easy to cast blame and it's very easy to say, well, you should have known. Yeah. Um, what happened this last week? I, I don't know. I don't, like, was it preventable? Maybe, I, I would hope it was, but maybe it was just not quite as easy to predict as we're sitting here saying. Like, I'm a product designer. I I do not know how a windmill works. I do not know what measures they've taken. I do not know what budget constraints they've had. It's it's just, it's too easy to cost blame. And I, I, I don't, I personally do not do that unless I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, that that's prudent. I think I think I'm there with you. Um, you know, I just talked to John Stokes earlier, uh, and listeners uh, will have listened to to that conversation by the time they get to to your section, your segment, uh, Lisa. And he did say even he was kind of caught flat footed. Uh, like so, it got below 17 degrees, which meant that the diesel on his property started mm-hmm. freezing. So oh, this yeah. is such an extreme event that, um, you know, it, maybe it's the new normal in terms of volatility due to climate change. But uh, yeah, like, you know, a lot of stuff in Texas is not designed to really freeze, especially south of Dallas. Yes. And our beautiful, large aesthetic windows that give us the gorgeous views and our open floor plans are not ideal for this temperature. It's... No. (laughs) Yeah, so... so, yeah. Do you really design for that one event that happens once every hundred years, or do you design for quality of life the rest of the time? Yeah, I mean that's an interesting point because, you know, uh with the food spoilage and, you know, the economic stress caused by some people, like maybe it's just cheaper to like give people a bunch of money, you know? And not design for this happening every two years because it won't. It'll happen every twenty or thirty or forty years. Um, you know, and you know, so I I it's I I think like one one thing that I'm taking from this conversation that I have with you is like, you know, there's this human element that we've had to grapple with, but now there's going to be kind of the more analytical element that we're going to have to deal with as we proceed forward. Like is, is are you? Yeah. So I, I feel like that's what I'm, I'm hearing here. Um, all right. So it was great talking to you. Um, I'm going to let you, uh, you know, get back with your kid. Um, we should definitely keep in touch and, 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 um, Really appreciate your friendship. Really appreciate you reaching out. Um, you people like you are the reason yeah. the society functions, Lisa. So, really appreciate that. Thank you. And um, same. Bye bye. Right. Right. Hey everybody. So uh, I am here right now with uh, Josiah Neely of the Urbane Cowboys podcast and other things. Yeah, he can mention whatever he wants to mention. Uh, but um, I'm also here right now with. Uh, Baron Hobart, who is uh, a prominent substacker, far more prominent than I, uh, not quite at, at uh, Scott Alexander levels, but you know he's he's working on it. Uh, he has the diff uh, at Substack, so check that out. And then um, I'll let them introduce themselves however they want to. First, why don't you go, Josiah, and then Baron? Uh, sure. So I think two relevant facts about me. One is uh, that I I work for the R Street Institute, which is a a think tank working on electricity stuff. 
And the other is uh, I live in Austin, Texas. I guess we all do. <laughs> but uh, uh, so, you know, I'm at, I'm at the center of the story right now, I guess you could say. Hey, uh, I am not quite at the center of the story, but uh, I also live in Austin. So I read a newsletter about inflections in finance and technology, and I like to nerd out on, um, on topics like this one, actually. So I've, I've been writing a fair amount about blackouts. Um, I did some writing about the economics of blackouts while it was dark and I could see my breath, uh, which was kind of fun. It's, it's rare to be in the story and also writing the story. Well, let's do let's do our bona fides, uh, blackout bona fides. Um, I, I will go first because I think I, uh, I think I'm, I well, I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about what's we'll we'll talk about what's worse, you know? Because so here's my story. Uh, we lost power uh, two a.m. Uh, Monday, and um, basically uh, we got it on Thursday ten forty five. Uh, we lost power. And that's all we lost. We didn't lose any water. We didn't lose any gas. Um, so it was really cold. And uh, we've been watching our water, but it looks like we don't have any issues with leaks. I don't know. But um, that was our quote-unquote blackout experience. We have enough food, uh, and we have gas in the car, so we could charge phones. And my internet, not my internet, but my um, cell phone provider, great service from T-Mobile Sprint. There is no co-sponsorship. But I'm just going to be putting that out there because I have talked crap about Sprint before. Uh, I've been with Sprint since the year 2000, so 20 years. The only cell phone provider I've had, and but I have complained about it. But I have to say it's been really good during the blackout. Josiah, what's going on with you? Uh, so yeah, we uh, never lost power here, so that was definitely a big plus. Um, we did lose water a couple days ago um so we don't we're relying on bottled water and uh snow melted snow for other non-drinkable purposes uh we also lost childcare, uh which uh has been has been fun but all things all, all things considered uh i think we kind of got off relatively easy compared to a lot of other people yeah, I'm kind of in the middle there. So we lost power about, um, I think, 8 a.m. or so on Monday. Um, it was back for a couple hours and then gone again, and um, then came back fully on Tuesday afternoon with with these occasional kind of playful flickers into a blackout again that would last for a minute or so. So that was really fun. Um, we don't have water, but uh, we also have bottled water. And one of the things I learned from this experience is that there are a lot of online resources devoted to the question of whether eight cups of water a day is a myth or is actually a requirement or is a statistical average. And um, all of the ones that say that it's not a requirement or that it is a myth, they don't actually do a very good job of quantifying how much water an average person drinks. So surprisingly hard question to Google, but uh, I think we figured out that we have a couple weeks of bottled water, so we're good. And we also lost childcare, which has been very exciting. Well, so, um, you know, I don't know. You guys seem pretty chill with the water issue, but for me, that was actually what was really scary because I feel like 
you can do without power, but you can't do without water. Like, what do you think? Well, uh, I mean, I, I do think it does matter that in both of our cases, we had a, a backup, it sounds like, right? So not worried about drinking water. It's not really an issue uh, because it's, we, I, we still had our like pandemic stockpile. Um, if we did not have that, then, you know, things start to get, you know, pretty dicey pretty fast. Um, particularly since all the, like, pretty much all the uh, grocery stores and other things are closed or cleared out. Yeah, I, I'm, I think if you had told me last year that by 2021, I would repeatedly say to myself, I'm really glad COVID happened. Um, I wouldn't have believed you, but it's true just that we have all this backup stuff. We bought a ton of food and a lot of water and um, we didn't dig into our reserves. And now, now they're very good to have around. And my attitude on water is that um, once that the weather is getting better quickly or will be getting better in the next few days, and once the roads are not icy, I suspect that um, a lot of grocery stores will be desperate to stock as much bottled water as they can, which I don't think means it'll be easy for people to get it, but I do think it means that it'll be available in some places. And um, HEB, I, I have a lot of faith in them now because I, I know that they did an extraordinary job during COVID, um, in part because they talked to their Chinese suppliers, but in part because they're just uh, really on point with logistics and with keeping stuff in stock for situations like this. So um, I I think that bottled water will probably be available soon. I have no idea how to estimate how long it will take to fix all of the leaking pipes in various places. I know the uh, the plumbing market has been marginally deregulated in response, but I'm not sure that that'll be enough to solve the problem quickly. Well, so um, before we get on, I want to talk about supply chain. So that'll be more your thing, uh, Baron. Uh, Josiah, what's going on with uh, ERCOT? And um, I mean, I don't know. What's, go what's going on with the power here? Uh, Texas is a state with a lot of energy resources. What's going on? I, I honestly haven't kept track of all the details. I don't care. I was cold. <laughs> I was hoping the power was coming back on. I just I don't care. But like, so what's going on? So uh, there are still some specifics that are unknown, but I think I think the basic case is apparent by now. And the you know the reality is uh, Texas we're a state that's used to being really hot, and our electric system is d optimized for that, and we are not used to things being super cold. And so our system is not optimized for that. So, for example, uh, we use a lot of natural gas for electricity. In the summer, that's fine. In the winter, a lot of natural gas is also being diverted for home heating. And so apparently a lot of plants uh, were not able to get adequate supplies of natural gas to run their plants. Uh, a, a lot of plants are also not properly weatherized for really cold weather. Uh, the turbine components and sensors are exposed to the elements. And so when things get really cold, they they shut down uh, or freeze. 
And um, another issue is in the summer, we have all the plants ready to go. In the winter, since it's normally not a peak period uh, for electric demand, a lot of plants do scheduled maintenance. So we had about 10 gigawatts of electric capacity that was online, offline for scheduled maintenance. And uh, we ended up having about another 20 gigawatts, which ended up offline either because they couldn't get supplies or there was, uh, they froze or other things. For whatever reason, they're offline, which is like a third of the total for Texas. So when you lose a, a third of your electric generation and you have like really high usage because everybody needs to heat their home, uh, you end up with uh, blackouts. And so, like, what, 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 why were the, so, why were the rolling blackouts, why did that not happen? Like, I, I read the, what they said online. It didn't, like, I don't know the science of it. Uh, like, like, what was going on? Why did they have, because, like, you know, some people like me, we lost power for, I mean, three and a half days. You never lost power, Josiah. Um, I don't know why, but, I mean, I know why, like, there's a neighborhood close to mine where um, they didn't lose power because they're on the uh, Davidson uh, they're on the hospital um, medical system grid. Like, I mean, what, what are we going to get a postmortem where we talk about why some neighborhoods lost and some neighborhoods didn't? And then I felt like, okay, we were just kind of left out of the loop, those of us that were like, and like we did okay, but there's some people that this caused serious issues for. Yeah, so th this was definitely a big problem in Austin. Uh, it uh... – Perhaps also, you know, I, I have heard that it was also an issue in Houston, uh, maybe not so much in some other surrounding cities. So what they're what you're supposed to do in a situation like this where you do not have adequate supply to meet demand is you try to cycle through different locations cutting off power. So the plan was that they would shut down certain neighborhoods for 40 minutes and then bring them back up and shut down other neighborhoods and manage the power that way. Uh, apparently, what the city has said is that the gap in electricity, the, you know, the, the gap between supply and demand was so big that they ended up having to shut down basically everything that wasn't attached to uh, some sort of critical infrastructure like a hospital or uh, a fire station or something like that. And so they couldn't do the rolling part. Now, it seems like uh, they should, you know, it, at, the, at the very least, it seems like something that they should have been more prepared for as a possibility. And there definitely hasn't been a lot of transparency from the city about exactly why they had to do what they did and they didn't really warn people that it was going to have to be that way uh which i think you know would have also helped so i you know there's there's obviously there's going to be a lot of recriminations people are really angry and so i expect i expect there'll be a lot of postmortem and uh hopefully you know as as part of that uh we'll get we'll get some details about it exactly what happened and, and why it worked out the way it did. Yeah, you know, 
as I said, like we had enough food and we had water and gas. So I don't want to like overdo like our suffering, you know, but uh, it was just like kind of a weird situation where I understood intellectually on a high level what you said there. Um, on the other hand, you know, a lot of people are pointing fingers at which neighborhoods got electricity and which did it. And that's going to be analyzed and that's fine. But uh, it, it's just kind of like a situation where you think, okay, so the goal is make sure you're always on a grid. Like if you're going to live somewhere or build a house or buy a house, make sure you're on a grid with uh, a hospital or a fire station or something like that. Because whatever the city says, at the end of the day, they're going to protect the critical infrastructure, which reasonably and rationally they should. On the other hand, like it leaves residential customers in a situation where, I mean, I can't imagine what it was like for the older people that are perhaps retired who were out of power for days. Now, they probably had people helping, but um, this is not like a trivial situation with the amount of uh, you, electricity that we use in our life, not just for internet and even light, but say your, uh, you know, your washing machine, your, your dishwasher, uh, your washing machine, all these other things that people are using and that are hooked into like the electrical system. So, I mean, we have a gas, we have a gas stove, but you know, it's run partly on electric. And so, okay, like we had to like light it with a match. That was fine, but we couldn't use the stove. And they're just, these are minor things in the general scheme. But I mean, I'm imagining people that have, you know, monitors, medical monitors at home of various sorts. Okay. I'm yeah. sure they have backup batteries, but you well, know, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure that over the coming days, you know, we're going to discover as things thaw out and power gets restored, restored, you know, we're going to discover a lot of people who have died uh, in various ways, you know, either from exposure or from, uh, you know, lack of electricity, you know, that causes other problems. Um, yeah, I mean, so Texas has its own grid. Um, and I read a little bit, a little bit, not very much. Like I actually did not care at all until this week uh, about why it's on its own grid. Um, what do you think about that, Josiah, in terms of there's this huge, like if anyone Googles it, they'll see this huge grid in the eastern half of the United States and a huge grid on the western half of the United States. And then Texas is separated. Now, this is a energy-rich state. It kind of makes sense in a way. But um, do you think it's optimal in light of what just happened, which was a, a very extreme event. The temperature went down to like 10 degrees or even lower um, in central Texas, Fahrenheit. So that's ridiculously cold. So I can understand why things didn't work out. Uh, and I do have a follow-up question and I'll let Baron speak if he has any comments, but uh, like, what do you think about the feasibility of this separate grid, which has its historical reasons and rationales? Yeah. I, so just for the listeners, you know, the, the main reason why Texas has its own intrastate grid is that uh, federal jurisdiction over electricity and the federal regulation of electricity is premised on the idea that grids are interstate. And so they're part of interstate commerce. And so the federal government has the ability to regulate it. And uh, Texas did not, you know, we wanted to do our own thing. We didn't necessarily want to follow whatever came out of Washington. And so if you had uh, a completely intrastate grid, uh, you were able to do that. Uh, you know, uh, the, um, I think, uh, historically, uh, the fact that our grid is not hooked up to the two other 
really big grids uh, has not been a problem for us. Um, in fact, you know, because the state is so big just in the, of itself and we have so many resources um, and in theory, uh, you know, you can also have situations where being part of a big connected grid can also be a problem. If you remember the blackouts of uh, the early 2000s, yeah. um, you know, that started uh, because of a downed power line and some broken sensors and it just kind of like cascaded through a huge region because it was was connected, right? So there, you know, there's, there's, there's pluses and minuses. I don't, I don't actually know. I haven't seen any analysis that would suggest would, uh, would the situation here have been different if we had been part of one of the big, you know, two interconnects, uh, it's possible. Uh, so I'm sure that that's something that will be looked at, but I'm not, I, I, I don't know enough to say at this point. Bird, you got anything to say to that? Yeah, I think I think that's right. That um, you, you're basically your trade-off is you'll have fewer disasters, but they'll be of much larger magnitude if you're part of a, a bigger, more complicated system. And um, I also think there's uh, there's this tendency to to go back and forth between the engineering question and the economic question. And like on the engineering side, it is possible to to have a system that um, is more reliable than what we have, but it may not be the system that people actually want to pay for. And um, they might be wrong. Um, maybe people are too tolerant of hypothetical blackout risk, but um, I, I, I think that is, that is worth noting and that there are, just, there are a lot of different ways to achieve some level of redundancy. So um, we actually temporarily bought a generator um, and we we could have used that, I think, but by the time we had it set up, we um, power came back on, and so we did not end up needing to use it. And it was also very loud. But um, you can you can imagine a more resilient system that uh, that has a lot more rooftop solar and home batteries. But that stuff gets pretty expensive, and um, that also that does at least save you from the problem of trying to choose your home based on its proximity to hospitals and other essential infrastructure. Um, we, it just may be that, um, that Texas has, has preferred a lower cost and lower reliability system and that these things will happen maybe every decade or so. Now, where it gets interesting is um, perhaps reliability is getting more important, A, as more of the things that we use every day do require electricity or do assume that it's always available by default and assume that internet is always available by default. Um, you know, I, I, I suspect that there are people who have smart homes and the homes got a lot dumber um, because even if they had some backup source of electricity, if, they, if their smart fridge can't phone home to, can't access the internet and phone home, maybe it's uh, not so smart after all. Um, it's, it's just very expensive, potentially very expensive to, well, it's always very expensive to get the last little bit of reliability. Um, you can, you can see that in things like military procurement or the space program where getting, getting from 99.9% to 99.999% is really, really expensive. And you have to really, really care about having exactly one copy of something that will never break to, to actually justify that. 
And um, getting getting close to that with occasional failures is just a lot more economically feasible. So we'll see. Maybe maybe the the, the Texas electorate will be much more much more sensitive to this kind of tail risk now than a few weeks ago, and will be happy to pay slightly higher prices in exchange for more reliability. Yeah. Well, wh- one thing that I will say though is. Uh... In terms of the risk and, and whatever, uh, I think part of the issue is they were pretty chill up until the last minute, and so um, you know they were they were not under promising and over overproducing. Uh, that's that's my perception. What do you guys think? Uh, yeah, I think. Um... If you look at the forecast that ERCOT had, um, they they more or less correctly predicted uh, what the demand for electricity would be. Uh, you know, some of that you have to guess because you know uh, we didn't quite make it to the to the peak. Um, but I think you know they did they did a pretty good job of predicting what it would be. What they failed to predict was how, you know, the generation outages, I think, uh, you know, they do a, a quarterly forecast and they're, they had a worst case scenario or an extreme scenario in their forecast of what the possible outages could be. And the reality was almost twice as bad as their worst case forecast, right? So that was clearly, a an error, a forecasting error. Uh, but I think that probably explains why uh, they were so chill, right? Is that, you know, they, they had the, they had this kind of like faulty forecast of, of what would happen. Um, and uh, whether, whether they should have known better, um, I'm sure is a question that will be gone over with, uh, with a lot of, a lot of detail and passion. Yeah, I mean, is this is this a tail risk issue? I mean, I'll open up to either of you. I mean, it it, it reminds me of, of they have a model. The model has like normal interval of possibilities, and this is just outside. So I talked to John Stokes uh, earlier yeah. today, and he's getting you know part of this podcast actually. Um, he'll be the first one that the listeners listen to, and he, you know he was just like his diesel assumes that it's going to be seventeen degrees or higher. <laughs> And it was below seventeen, so all sorts of stuff started not working on his on his um, you know residence on on his on his ter- on his acreage. So, um, is that what's going on? Is it like a multiple sigma event, like beyond what we were expecting? It's more than two. Yeah, yeah I think so. There, there is definitely a pattern where the worst disasters are the ones where a bunch of things that were independent variables become dependent on each other, or there's like all the correlations go to one, which usually happens in more social phenomena. But in this case, yeah, there was this correlation between sudden spike in energy demand and sudden drop in supply. And you would normally treat those as two things that don't have a lot of relationship to each other. Now, looking back on the last few days, we could say that actually it makes a whole lot of practical sense that if it gets really cold in Texas, that this can disrupt a lot of power generation and also cause people to use a lot more electricity. But um, people didn't really know it at the time. And and there's also a part that is closer to a social phenomenon of um, of how people react to 
any claim that you should conserve because one way to look at conservation is if the power got switched off, it comes back on, you don't know how long it'll be on. Um, the very nice thing to do is set your thermostat to 60 and avoid doing anything that requires power and unplug every appliance you have. And the more um, maybe cynical thing to do is to assume that you won't have power for very long. So everything that you could do at some point that requires electricity, you should do right now. So brew a bunch of coffee and store it and do all your laundry and um, have it ready. Um, you could sort of think of those things as de facto batteries where they are a way to store electricity while you have it and then use it while it's not available. And um, I don't know how much of that was going on and I can't really, because I have a sample size of one with respect to how, how electricity availability went for this household. Um, I can't tell how much of the difficulty in restoring power was that people used it really aggressively. We tried not to, but um, I don't know. I I think if, if I thought that power was going to be on for two hours and then off for a week, that I probably would have behaved differently. Yeah. Yeah, no, it has crossed our mind too in terms of we're trying to conserve, but um, you know, when the power came on, we started washing dishes, doing our laundry, and just stuff that we hadn't been able to do and our water heater made it through fine. A bunch of people lost their water heater or, you know, they can't get hot water anymore. So they got to boil the water. I, I don't know what's up with that. I don't know anything about that sort of engineering, but um, there are some like serious uh, infrastructure impacts. So you guys will hear it when you listen to this full podcast, but uh, a friend of mine, um, Josiah's met this guy. Uh, he, Gareth, he, uh, the sprinklers in his condominium complex blew and just hosed his uh, a bunch of units. And so he's a refugee in Round Rock. Now, what happened is actually he had moved to another condominium complex that had power, and that's what happened at that complex. So they moved back to his apartment, which had no power but was dry, and then it happened there. And so um, I think we're going to see a lot of infrastructure repair that will need to be done in Austin after this is you know, accounted for. Uh, yes, definitely. I mean, water, power, gas, um, you know, there probably even some road damage um, or other things like uh, as power comes back on, you know, there's risks of like fire from uh, from the, you know, heaters or other things that have been not properly turned off. So. So uh, let's 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 pivot to uh, the supply chain, um, and this is your your thing, Bernd. So I mean, it doesn't sound like you're too worried, but let's talk about that. Um, why you're not worried, and like, I mean, so just in terms of context for the listener, uh, you know, gas. It's a lot of gas stations have been closed, partly because they have no power, but partly because they have no gas. Um, you know, I went into my local mini mart just to see if they had anything. They had two things left. They had a bunch of alcohol, like all of the alcohol was left. So people are not drinking during the blackout, which, you know, whatever. And also, outrageously to me, hot sauce. There's just like a bunch of hot sauces left. So hot sauce and alcohol, people are not going for during the blackout. But everything else, like candy bars, like, you know, all of the household supplies, the fruit, the eggs, the milk, they're all gone. Um, HEB's here, 
you know, here is in Austin seem to be having issues with stock. Uh, my friend who I talked to earlier in the podcast said the HGBs in Round Rock to the north of here are fine. Uh, for people outside of the area, it's like, say, 30 minutes to an hour, depending on the traffic, you know, to get to Round Rock, probably. Uh, maybe maybe closer to an hour. But in any case, it's not that far away. So what do you think about the supply chain? you think it's going to snap back, guys? Yeah, I I know a lot less about the the, I guess, second to last mile of, um, of distribution. But a lot of the companies that manage complicated supply chains, this is what they actually game. They, they actually think about all of these different disruptions. They think about worst case scenarios. Um, so I mentioned HEB and how they handled COVID really well. And one of the reasons for that was that they actually had a pandemic plan back from SARS and they had a whole checklist of things they should do of things that would sell out quickly, what they should order more of, et cetera. So um, I, I suspect that there are just that a lot of, a lot of those organizations, they, they already have some kind of plan and they're already working as quickly as they can to, to fix things. And um, in terms of the, in terms of the gas market, um, there's, there's also some pretty strong market incentives to, to get production up again. So, um, and I know that that sounds like just the, the general libertarian, you know, the, the market is magical and will solve all of our problems, but markets do provide really strong incentives and they certainly provide a good reason to mobilize people and capital to solve the most profitable, the most pressing problem in terms of profitability that they can. So, yeah, I, um, you know, I, I definitely wouldn't, wouldn't want to be just counting on HEB being fully stocked everywhere tomorrow but um i i suspect that they will bounce back fairly quickly in some form and um it'll probably be not quite the experience that we're used to but um they'll they'll be able to get some essentials in and some of that is just the 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 simple fact that uh, a lot of roads were iced over but it's going to be warmer in the next few days a lot of the ice will melt trucks will be able to get to stores again and uh, a lot of power has been restored so a lot of a lot of the really practical constraints on getting things to stores are are not going to be as big a constraint in the next few days. So you're thinking more like a, it's going to be an issue of days, not weeks. I think I think like days before days before it's actually worth it to go to a grocery store. Um, weeks if you're not desperate. Weeks before. You go to a grocery store and things seem pretty much the way they were in January. All right, so it's gonna it's gonna take a little while to to restock some of the stuff. And like you know, I'm reading about like a lot of uh, local Texas produce is. Uh, I mean, this was a crazy weather event. Uh, uh, a lot of stuff is gone, so that's gonna have an impact, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it'll it'll definitely have an impact, um, but that that is not um a lot of the stuff that is produced locally is not necessarily consumed locally so i think the the impact is going to be more broad based i see i see so it, yeah it's not like the farm to table is whatever is ever what everyone is doing um do you guys i mean I, this is more of a josiah question i guess um do you think uh i don't know is there gonna be political impact from this i think uh uh, I'll be entirely frank. Uh, like I wasn't paying too much attention to all this political stuff, but it seemed like for the first uh, couple of uh, 
and, and Mirren, you, you can also jump in. But the like, first couple of days, people were clowning around, and I think they just kind of calmed down recently in terms of like, okay, this is serious. Like, you know, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, so a, a friend of mine pointed out to me that uh, because of the structure of Texas legislature, it's actually, if you care about reforming the system, it's really fortunate that this happened in an odd-numbered year and that um, it could have been an unsolved, it could end, have ended up being an unsolved problem had it happened with a really long lag before the next meeting of the state legislature. Yeah, I mean, uh, people are really angry uh, and, uh, ju you know, justifiably so. And so they're, you know, I think uh, that's going to spur a lot of activity and response by politicians trying to find, you know, who to blame and, and what to change or whatever. Um, I've seen a number of things put out there that uh, I don't think are like the most uh, productive responses or proposals for reform or whatever. Um, so hopefully whatever happens, you know, there'll be enough reflection and discussion that the, you know, whatever changes are made are actually good and not just like symbolic or misunderstanding the nature of this, you know, just kind of like you're upset. So you want to kind of like punish people or tear something down in a way that actually makes the system even more fragile going forward. Yeah, I, I, as I've looked at some of the proposals and some of the reactions, I've just been impressed with what a complicated problem it is to actually provide reliable electricity to a very large and spread out state with a lot of people. And so I think, um, I think basically all of the knee-jerk reactions will be wrong and that whatever solutions we arrive at are going to just be a lot more complicated and have a lot less partisan valence than than the current reactions. And I think some of that is just, it is, um, if you have priors about whether the Green New Deal is a really good idea or a really bad idea, or if you think nuclear is a really great idea or a really terrible idea, um, you quickly see evidence for your priors and you're less likely to spot evidence that those priors were wrong. So um, I, I think a lot of people had sort of this, um, had cash policy proposals that they just um, whipped out at the first opportunity. and it's just going to be complicated. And um, there are just a lot of weird nonlinear interactions. Like one of the things that, um, that I hadn't thought about too much, but which is true is that when you, that renewables tend to be, um, they tend to be less, less reliable just in the sense of you can't count on a solar panel or a wind turbine producing a particular amount of power at a particular time every day. It might, you can count on the average production, but not the point in time production. And that's important because as a state gets more reliance on renewables, it actually makes the grid less um, less predictable. So that that is not an argument against renewables. It's an argument that you have to actually think about the entire portfolio of energy assets. And um, it might end up being some kind of barbell looking system where you have a lot of natural gas that is available to handle peak loads and then a whole lot of wind for everyday stuff. And of course, 
there are also just endless debates over what the actual cost is, how to think about subsidies, how to think about the experience curve. Because solar, for example, is getting cheaper faster at an incredible pace, and batteries are getting cheaper and faster too. So every year, the the cost of switching from fossil fuels to solar plus batteries it gets a, gets much more compelling. You you have to make less and less of a climate change argument and more and more of a cost of capital versus you know net present value of the assets you're buying kind of argument but um it's it's always going to be complicated especially because a lot of these assets they last for a really long time so you if you're trying to figure out how to optimize the power grid you should have a 50-year plan for what gets decommissioned and what gets replaced with over a really long period because you can't just switch from mostly natural gas to mostly something else on short notice yeah, that sounds right. I mean, I, I, I do think that a lot of the short-term reactions are, uh, you know, they're literally short-sighted insofar as something like infrastructure, energy infrastructure is something that, uh, you know, organically develops over decades and who the choices that we make now will have impact decades down the line. So it's a, it's a totally different, uh, you know, window, horizon window of attention, I think, than we're used to a lot of these political issues. Um, I guess like, a question that I would have, so talking to John Stokes uh, of uh, theprepared.com, so, you know, he knows this stuff. Uh, he pretty much admitted to me that he was caught flat-footed with some of what happened, partly because it got so much colder uh, than he was expecting uh, in central Texas. Has what happened and like you know you guys are relatively well prepared partly because of the covid covid19 has has the the recent events changed your priors going forward in any way uh yeah so i mean i definitely think that you know with any with like preparedness in general there's a lot of stuff where until you actually face the situation uh, you may not have thought about all those specific things. Uh, so, you know, um, uh, I think while, while, uh, it had, you know, I had food, had, um, had water. Um, it wasn't quite apparent to me, like, I guess it just, it just didn't come into, I hadn't, I hadn't fully like internalized how much water we use for other purposes besides drinking. Um, and you know, what would like, even if you have, like, we've got several bathtubs full of water, but I mean, they're ice cold and they're, a lot of it is from outside. Right. So that, that was actually, uh, advantageous, I guess is that we had that, but like, you, you're not going to use that for like bathing. Um, you don't really want to use that. You, you, I mean, you can boil it and maybe use it for some dish cleaning or whatever, but, um, just like a lot of these things are kind of interconnected and, and even your workarounds, they don't work quite as well as you, as you expect them to. Yeah, I think it's, it's probably not a coincidence that, um, when when people are part of organizations where preparing for disasters is just a big part of what they do, that they do a lot of drills and a lot of practice, and they actually, as much as they can, try to pretend to go through whatever crazy circumstance they think could arise. And um, we didn't 
we didn't do that. I guess, except to the extent that COVID was a drill for just stay inside your house and have lots of backup supplies because you don't know what'll be available. Um, other than that, um, hadn't really hadn't really practiced this, and there are always kinks that you work out. Um, there was a, a viral Twitter thread that was actually pretty mean spirited, but it was about a guy whose I think brother was a survivalist and. He had all these supplies and guns and things, but um, he didn't have a non-electric can opener and um, all these other other issues. And it seems like, like at one level it's funny, at another level it's sad. And you know, I hope I hope that uh, group of preppers gets through this okay. But I also suspect that if they'd taken one long camping trip, they would have actually figured out a lot of these problems in a, a much safer environment. So maybe. Maybe it is a an argument not so much for thinking about the distribution as thinking about the the fact that you should actually take some of this stuff on some kind of dry run and try to figure out what you could actually how you'd actually do if you had to rely on all of your prepping. All right, last question. Um, I have been thinking a little bit about COVID-19 and now, you know, this localized event, how American society in the U.S. reacts to these sorts of exogenous shocks. I have not been very impressed. Um, I don't think too much personally about climate change just because it's not part of my, you know, domain expertise area, but I'm assuming that it's happening. Um, what do you guys think going forward? Do you think climate volatility will make, uh, I don't know, these sorts of climate, sh like, localized weather shocks uh, more likely? Uh, do you also, how do you think that relates to the sociology and economics of the United States in terms of how robust or anti-fragile we are to these sorts of shocks? Uh, my own sense is we're not actually that robust and we're probably not going to get that much more robust because our cultural energies are not flowing into uh, engineering as much as it is flowing into other things uh you know i mean we're ruled by lawyers no offense josiah mm -hmm. uh you know that's the culture we are so what do you guys think yeah i think um you know there there are a lot of uh advantages to having different sort of uh of goods provided like by some sort of large scale entity either either through uh uh, you know, a utility or uh, the market or something. And one thing that I think has kind of happened that I've, I've found repeatedly over the last uh, year, 18 months or whatever, is um, you, kind of like a growing sense that you can't count on any of those. Um, and uh, so you try and like find substitutes, but actually, I mean, you know, like the the like cost benefit of having a a generator for me has definitely gone up but it would be a lot better if i and cheaper if i could just rely on the system to give me power right because the generators uh are more expensive and they don't work as well and there's other issues it's the same thing with a lot of this other stuff but i do i do kind of wonder if you you're going to see like just more more and more people kind of withdraw um, into them into themselves and you know try and become more self-sufficient uh, which you know 
has some has some advantages in in a crisis, but is also not like it's not ideal because it's like expensive and it doesn't work as well as if you could just count on the, you know, broader society to, to, to do some of these things. Yeah. I think the general, the general rule is that really centralized systems are good at pursuing specific goals and really decentralized systems are good at adapting to changing circumstances. And I think that's true within organizations. It's a good description of how clusters of different organizations operate. And um, it's maybe the depressing view is that we are, we're centralized, um, more centralized than we should be. And that would be fine if we were actually pursuing definite goals, but I don't think anyone really knows what the federal government is for, like what is, what constitutes mission accomplished or what are the KPIs, you know, no one, no one really knows what we're doing. So um, that does make me lean more towards a distributed system. But distributed systems are often very inefficient. They often have a lot of duplication of effort. And I've, I've run through just some of the, the basic mental math of what would it cost for everyone in Texas to have solar and batteries, and it's expensive. Or what would it cost for everyone to have a generator and enough gasoline stored that uh, we'd be able to run our generators and power our houses for long enough to get through outages like this. And it's also expensive. It's um, it's a couple weeks of, I think for the U.S. to do this, it would be a couple weeks of um, global gasoline consumption just devoted to stockpiling, which would be a huge swing in demand. So um, having this, having a more decentralized system is less efficient, but there might be some virtues to that where um, you're at least you're a lot more aware of what is required to survive and get through a crisis if you're actually doing some of the work yourself rather than expecting for there not to be a crisis or expecting it to get resolved on its own. So um, it might be it's probably morally better, but um, it's it's also morally unfortunate that it's better in a utilitarian sense. Sounds like we got some trade offs here. Right. Sadly. Yeah. Well, um, you know, it's great that we talk about this and we think about this. But, uh, you know, if anything, (laughs) the last week has taught me is, you know, sometimes you also just need to take action. Uh, Life just comes at you and you got to figure it out. Um, You know, so many of us are uh, somebody like uh, Jerry Springer, like final thought. So many of us are, you know, stuck into these sociological economic systems that are highly interdependent and so effective and they scale really well and they create this incredible mass society that feeds billions and billions of people the vast majority of who don't vast majority who do not engage in primary production who don't farm right and then the system gets a little knocked on its side and so many of us are discombobulated so it's just uh it's kind of a reality call and i don't know if autarky of the sort Josiah is describing and burn is, you know, describing the downsides of it in terms of efficiency is the future. But I suspect more and more people will be looking to autarky uh, and independence, partly because uh, we have a bunch of social statistics that show that people don't trust institutions and trust in institutions is declining uh, and it continues to decline. And when you don't have trust in society, it's hard to have society. So, uh, that's that's kind of a a Debbie Downer conclusion, and I hope to be wrong, but uh, I don't think I am. 
Josiah, do you want to finish with optimism? Because I know that's your forte. Uh, no. <laughs> I do not want to finish with optimism. Well, yeah. I'm usually pretty pessimistic, but I do I do have an optimistic note to add, which is that I was extremely impressed with how many people checked in on us, how many people came to our house to help out with things, um, how many neighbors were friendly and helpful. I I was uh, so I'm I've raised my estimation of both Austin and Twitter in response to this because those are the the two big social clusters that I was interacting with. And um, I think that is that is a positive part of the story that I guess um, maybe COVID is a special case because you actually it's actually very bad to go check on people and potentially spread a disease or get the disease yourself. But in this case, there was actually um, there, there were great practical barriers and um, just the streets were all frozen, but um, a lot of people overcame them. So. That actually that surprised me very pleasantly, and I I hope that that is not an outlier. Well, I mean, you know, and that's great because you know you guys are, you and your wife are are, and your kids are new to Austin, right? You haven't been here that long, so the fact that this real life network and and uh, altruism has generated itself is actually a really good sign that there's something there. Yeah, definitely. Um, I we we moved from Brooklyn to Austin in August, like so many other people, and um, I, I definitely think there's there's something very different. It would be very very odd in Brooklyn for our neighbors to pitch in that way. It, I wouldn't say it would never happen. I'm sure there are neighborhoods where it does happen all the time, but um, I think median median neighborliness is certainly a lot higher here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I saw some of that. I saw some of that as well. I also saw, and I've mentioned this earlier on the podcast uh, with other guests, is uh, <laughs> after the power came back, people's facial expressions were very different from before. From before, there was a somber Cormac McCarthy-esque, you know, the road look on people's faces where they too were just like, I have seen the darkness that you have seen, you know? And then after the power came back, it's kind of like, okay, there's some hope there. So, you know, uh, it can't get worse in the short term, in the near term, than what we have just gone through. Let's hope we don't go through worse, but let's prepare for it, right? Yeah. All right, guys. It was great talking to you. Uh, Josiah, you know, going to check you out on the Urbane Cowboys. I hope everyone listens to that. And uh, Burn, you know, the diff. Uh, you have so many subscribers. I'm sure that, uh, you know, Everyone has heard about you already, but if not, just go to Substack Leaderboard and you'll see he's right there. Um, you know, the goal of my life at this point is to catch him, but I don't know if that will happen, but you need goals. <laughs> That's right. Uh, great talking to you. This podcast for kids.